Good morning, bon dia, buenos dias. Thank you for joining us. We are here today discussing the Venezuelan integration and reception of Venezuelan refugees and immigrants in South America. This is a new community of Venezuelan migrants coming to South America. Welcome again to this webinar. We are working with the Migration Policy Institute and International Organization for Migration, IOM. It is our pleasure to welcome two renowned colleagues from the International Organization for Migration, Luca D'Agolio. He's a chief of mission and a great friend of ours here in the US. Also Diego Beltran, who works for the, as the Director General Special Envoy for Regional Response in the Venezuelan Situation. Also, we have Betilde Munoz-Bogosian, Director of the Department of Social Inclusion at the OAS. She is well-versed in these matters. She's also a Venezuelan herself, and she has been working in social inclusion also throughout the Americas, and she is a key speaker in these matters. Also, we have Marcos Maya, Director for the uh, Management Department of National Secretariat of Social Assistance from Brazil. And also we have Oscar Perez, president of the Union Venezuela, the, Uni the Venezuelan Union in Peru. And this will highlight how Venezuelans are not only a topic of public policy, but they are key actors in all matters of public policy vis-a-vis -vis migration and refugees throughout the whole region. So it is very important for us to elevate Venezuelan voices in this webinar. Thank you all for being here with us today. One minute, for those um, of you that speak English, um, there is translation. If you go to the bottom right corner, there should be a button that says translation or dot, 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 and it should give you the option of translation. Um, if you're on an iPad, it'll be an upper right. If you're on a computer, it'll be upper, it'll be lower right, I believe. And it should give you access to the interpretation. If you have any issues, send an email to Lisa Dixon, L-D-I-X-O-N, Lisa Dixon, L-Dixon, at migrationpolicy.org. That's at, at migrationpolicy.org. Also, if you have troubles with connection, you can send her an email. Um, you can also tweet at us at, at migrationpolicy, but it's easier to send her an email. Um, and if you have connection, issues or interpretation issues, please do that. But we do have full Spanish and English interpretation. We do not have Portuguese, unfortunately. And my my apologies to Marcos and all of our colleagues in Brazil. Um, but uh, but that's as far as we got today is English and Spanish. Um, this is a um, a discussion that is public. Um, and for the record, we are um, going to discuss a report that has been released this morning, looking at issues of uh, incorporation of Venezuelan migrants and refugees in five countries of the region. Um, something that I think is, is crucial to understand in today's discussion is that we have moved from a moment where we spoke primarily about policies of reception, about legalization, about legal pathways, about emergency needs, which are still important. I mean, legal pathways remain one of the pending issues for many people who've arrived in many countries in the region. And so it continues to be an important issue and people continue to arrive. So social assistance for those arriving also continues to be an issue. These have not disappeared in any way, but we are moving to a point where more and more Venezuelans who have moved 
out of Venezuela as refugees and forced migrants or have set up their life in another country, in Colombia, in Ecuador, in Peru, in, in Brazil, in Chile, in other countries. And the questions are now around social and labor market incorporation. How to make sure that people are full citizens, full members of those societies where they live, they can contribute productively, they can have their educational credentials recognized and their skill levels recognized, they can have access to credit, not just because it helps them, because it certainly does help them, but also it helps the host societies. Host societies do well when migrants do well and vice versa. There is a virtuous circle that's created when countries make use of the human capital that they have in their midst and allow everyone to be part of that. And this is a lesson I have to say, as, as a US citizen, let me say that we often look to Latin America, though many people wanna to come to the United States. I have to say many countries in Latin America have made very smart decisions on how to incorporate people, um, people who've arrived in ways that the United States and countries of Europe should be learning from. Um, there is experimentation going on in the countries of Latin America, as imperfect as it may be, which are really worth other countries with longer immigration histories trying to learn something about. Because, because I think there has been un animo de aprender, a spirit of learning, a spirit of experimentation in Latin America um, on how to incorporate people who have arrived um, that is in many, in many, but not all cases, but in many cases, um, truly an example that other people should learn by, even if it is not a perfect example. Um, this report documents some of this. It also documents some of the downsides that happened with COVID-19. Um, let me go ahead and introduce our first speaker, Luca Dalolio, is the, um, the Jefe de Misión, the Chief of Mission for IOM in the United States. He has been a long time um, leader within the IOM and within the UN system, um, and he's someone Whose, whose advice and guidance we value enormously. So let me turn it over to Luca. This is very much a joint IOM and MPI report, a joint IOM and MPI webinar today. And, and Luca, look forward to your remarks. Good morning, muy buenos dias. Thank you, Andrew, for your kind words. And if you allow me, I will uh, present a few introductory comments in, uh, in, in English. It is a real pleasure uh, to welcome you and to co-host this meeting with our MPI colleagues. Uh, I'm pleased that our organizations continue to produce such valuable and timely uh, contribution and information. On behalf of the IOM, I would like to greet and thank you, you Andrew, and the authors of the study, Diego Chavez, Maria Jesus Mora, and Jordi Amaral, as well as Alice Cloud from the IOM office of the Special Envoy and other colleagues who collaborated in this, in this venture. I also extend a special greeting to the distinguished panelists who join us today. We are pleased to see the growing diversity of voices committed to discuss and help identify long-term answers for the integration of Venezuelan people in the countries of the region. This study is another good example of how knowledge can benefit migration governance. This type of initiative can contribute to the formulation of inclusive public policies that favor both Venezuelan migrants and refugees who wish to remain in the region and the countries that host them. As Andrew underlined, we are now moving to looking into migration and development. And this study very much focuses on this aspect. MPI and IOM are strategic partners, equally motivated to observe and understand the dynamics of human mobility. 
and use the statistics and data to promote the adoptions of tangible policies and programs for the benefit of the Venezuelan people living in the region. This study is a new chapter of a project between MPI and IUM to analyze the information collected by the displacement tracking matrix, DTM in the IUM jargon, and obtain findings and recommendations to strengthen the humanitarian response to the migrant and refugee crisis in the region. As some of you may recall, in late August 2020, we jointly launched the study Esclareciendo el Panorama, una mirada a los datos sobre migrantes y refugiados venezolanos en América Latina y el Caribe. The DTM is a highly effective tool for supporting coordinated responses to this and other migration and mixed flows crisis around the world. DTM has been applied in more than 70 countries and has proven its usefulness in providing data and information that have informed humanitarian and transitional responses in many of the world's largest displacement crises. If I can make a, a personal uh, remark, when I was in charge of the IUI mission in Haiti after the unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe posed by the 2010 earthquake, early versions of the DTM were developed and used to map the thousands of informal settlements of earthquake victims, and thus be able to provide not just the UN but the whole humanitarian community with a re required humanitarian response targeting these uh, specific uh, settlements identified by the TM. Today, we highly value having a panel of representatives of governments, international organizations, and civil society. In this case, representing the Venezuelan diaspora to evaluate the findings and to share their own experiences. This time, the study has focused on the main receiving countries, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Brazil, and Chile, and has sought to trace the progression of the integration experience in three key periods, 2017-2018, when Venezuelan immigration accelerated, 2018-2019, when regional coordination was strengthened to respond to displacement, and 2020-2021, when the enormous impact of the COVID-19 pandemic affected the mobility and living conditions of displaced populations. Before listening to Diego Chavez's comments on the findings of the report, I think it is important to point out that throughout these periods, the Venezuelan population in the five countries has increased manifold. There is an increased feminization of migration and more family reunification movements. After the first report presented last year, new waves of COVID-19 followed which unfortunately increased evictions, unemployment rates, manifestation of xenophobia, and exacerbated the vulnerability of Venezuelan refugees and migrants in the host countries, as recorded in, in the study. The information to be shared today confirms once again, the huge resilience of Venezuelan migrants and refugees who have a strong willingness to be protagonists of their own destiny. In this regard, the report also provides insights into the capacities and skills of the Venezuelan people, a key asset to successfully overcoming this crisis. The study shows that the needs generated by this unprecedented displacement for Latin America and profoundly aggravated since the onset of the pandemic are multifaceted and dynamic and required a coordinated response as the one that it is being provided by the members of the regional coordination platform, co-led by IOM and by UNHCR in the 17 receptor countries. 
I take the opportunity to applaud the very positive outcomes and renewed commitment expressed by donor countries in the successful international conference recently organized by the government of Canada with the support of IUM and UNHCR. I would also like to comment to commend the strategy for the socioeconomic integration of Venezuelan refugees and migrants recently launched by UNDP and by ILO. Both MPI and IOM believe in the positive and profound impact of migration on development and share a vision of the need to forge broad and generous migration and integration policies. This is the spirit of this joint research on Venezuelan flows, to collect reliable data, generate knowledge, and transform it into concrete opportunities for integration in Latin America and the Caribbean. Last but not least, I would also like to deeply thank the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration, BPRM, of the Department of State of the US government for their support in the development of the DTM in receptor countries, as well as for the support provided for this very study. Thank you very much. Thank you, Luca. And with that, let me turn this over to Diego Chavez Gonzalez. Diego Chavez is the lead for, is in charge of MPI's Latin American initiative and he's the lead on this report as well. Diego, adelante. Thank you very much, Andre Luca. And uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with all of you. I'd like to begin by thanking Diego Beltran and uh, Luis Claude, who unfortunately couldn't be here with us today. It's uh, his birthday and uh, he was key in uh, producing this report. Also, Gustavo Meir, who also helped us systematize data, and very specially, my co-authors for this report. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Marcos, Matilde, Betilde, and everyone here, your key contributors as well. Andrea and Luca have mentioned that the data and its analysis allows us to provide more precise information to help refugees and migrants and to accompany the efforts made by the receiving societies. And it is proven that we need this in order to develop better public policies in a way that we are coalesced. And we are able to provide a collective results in this way. Luca has made a good description of what is happening with the Venezuelan people. Latin America has been also receiving this population very generously. As we know, there was a mass migration. In Colombia, we have about 7 million migrants from Venezuela, 1 million in Peru, about half a million in Chile and Ecuador, and 250,000 approximately living in Brazil. This without uh, taking into account the uh, migrants in transit and pendular migrants. And also I'd like to focus in integration because we must first understand what we're describing in terms of uh, integration because the greatest perils faced by these migrants is in transit because many of them walk through these borders and uh, this is a treacherous journey. There's a lot of abuse, exploitation. They're exposed to in, inhospitable areas that are arid and it is a plight. And many of them have been able to make it to an asylum process and 
become regular immigrants. And they have been able to have a warm welcome for many of these countries. However, many others were not as lucky and continue to be exposed to these threats, including sexual assault and gender violence, as well as abuse to minors and adolescents that has been included in the report. The Venezuelan population has also been subject to xenophobic attacks that have led to physical aggression and assaults. However, we have seen the courage of these people and they were able to make it through and have a have made it so that they have a promising future. Now with the pandemic and the different restrictions and lockdowns, this made it far more difficult for them to reach their destination and their services. And they have not been able to access health services, education services, and in many cases, the inability to fulfill or to meet all the uh, lockdown requirements, well, this has uh, made it even more perilous for them. And about 2% of migrants and Venezuelan refugees who, while in transit, they became desperate and were trying to also make it back home. And we've seen the pendular migrants with uh, exits that go from Venezuela to Colombia and towards Brazil. Now, given all the nuances in this migration, we will break it down in five different dimensions so that we could look at the socioeconomic integration. We look at the demographic profile of the migrants, the employment, social cohesion, and education. They all have a robust data analysis. We looked at the criteria in five periods in different Latin American countries that comprise 70% of the Venezuelan refugees in the world. This is uh, from different resources and sources. The data is presented in ranges with higher and lesser degrees to provide better indicators. Also, we compare these uh, figures with the national averages to get a better idea of how migrants are doing vis-a-vis -vis the receiving populations. Then with the demographic profile, we see that Venezuelan migrants are usually younger and therefore they're in, uh, they're very keen to forming part of the labor force compared to others. And those in irregular condition have increased in time. In Ecuador, about 44% of Venezuelans were there irregularly in 2017 and mid 2018, but by 2020, the proportion reached 72%. The unemployment rate depicts a great disparity in terms of labor insecurity between the Venezuelan population and the receiving population. Now, unemployment rates for Venezuelans is far higher in these countries throughout these periods. And it has been exacerbated with the gender gaps. And women not only have fewer jobs, but also they earn less. And then we must look at the kind of employment that they can access because Latin American labor markets have high levels of informal employment. And most of them coming into these countries are 
being able to get these informal jobs because they need official documents in order to work formally, a requirement that needs for them to show their degrees as well. And Chile, Colombia, and Peru have been able to receive some of these credentials and reported that as well. And we see the difficulty behind getting their academic and professional credentials of made official, and that has become a real hindrance in this process. It's worth noting that the immigrants and refugees leaving Venezuela more recently tend to have high education levels. And in some cases, these far surpass the receiving population's education level. And we need to guarantee education for minors and for teenagers. Chile has the highest schooling rate in the second and third period of our study between 85 and 93% of boys, girls, and adolescents from Venezuela have been enrolled in schools in other countries. However, the situation is not as promising and it has only gotten worse with the pandemic. Now, access to health services, even though this is a very important dimension in the integration process, it is now more urgent through COVID-19. Access to social security and to medical attention has become of the utmost importance. We see that there are universal healthcare provisions, but their access can be limited through COVID. And we have subsidized education in one of these countries. And then given the situation of refugees, the low percentages of those who had social or health insurance had to rely on the receiving countries. And in terms of social security, this could limit the ability for the receiving countries to accept more refugees. Now, social cohesion is fundamental because we need to reduce xenophobia as we accept more refugees. We have been able to gather more information on this matter throughout the region. In Brazil, the quota has been constant through time between 21 and 35% through all three periods. In Ecuador, on the other hand, the rate of people who have reported discrimination has varied. It's fluctuated, but about half of the Venezuelans going there have experienced discrimination in all three periods, but they were exacerbated between 2020 and 2021. In Colombia and Peru, a recent amount of uh, immigrants from Venezuela have reported discrimination. In Colombia, Many of them experienced discrimination in 2020 and 2021, about 45% or more in Peru. Now, in Chile is far less, but they have that notwithstanding experienced it there. Now, these are some of the recommendations we can present in order to improve this economic situation for the newly arrived Venezuelans and for the population in general. We encourage you to read all of them, but we can highlight to strengthen efforts to reduce irregular processes, also guarantee access to education and practice to facilitate the 
acknowledgement of credentials and to reduce the wage gaps and to maintain transparent data compilation and support research also to address the Afro-Venezuelan population and women coming in and also support social cohesion in addition to reducing the gaps in knowledge and capability as well as access to health and education. Now I'll be available if you have any questions, but now I will yield the floor to my fellow panelists and I leave you with Diego Beltran. Thank you very much, Diego. This was a keynote presentation of the report. Thank you all colleagues and panel members that have participated in the study. Now it's becoming habitual to conduct these type of presentations where we share data that will help us formulate better public policies with uh, MPI and IOM. I see with uh, great glee that we have more than 250 participants right now. Now I'd like to underscore some points that you raised. Now we have looked at data collection and their analysis. And uh, however, let's look at uh, integration in today's context. We must acknowledge that the uh, forecast is not encouraging. ECLAC has discussed a 5.2% economic growth for this year. And uh, these are insufficient for us to recover the uh, GDP that we had prior to the pandemic. In terms of employment in the first quarter, we recovered only 58% of employment, which denotes great difficulty facing us today and facing our refugees and migrants. Diego Chavez mentioned this very clearly. Well, you mentioned all the limitations and hindrances and we have low access to official or formal jobs, education, and we need to reduce the gender gap in terms of employment. Also some difficulty in being able to make the credentials officials. And there is an increased level of discrimination, unfortunately, maybe Brazil, is one country where this is not as evident, but it is for the rest of them. And the, uh, the workers are receiving less than the minimum wage. Now, you both have mentioned the importance of making documents official and how to regulate these processes and their migration. And this has been underscored by Eduardo Stein and others, because given this, we see how Colombia, Ecuador, Brazil are making inroads as well as Peru, Trinidad and Tobago, they're all making great inroads in terms of regulating these migrants. This is a great 
step forward, but it is necessary for us to really fully integrate the migrants. Now, when we look at integration, it's full of benefits. When we only look at the negative effects that this could have, and also that being compounded by COVID, we could mention several negative effects. However, through integration, we could better face these crises and the economic effects. It's been proven by the IMF in Colombia, and other reports from Ecuador, where between 0 0.1, 0.6, 0.9 of the GDP could grow as long as we regulate and integrate refugees and migrants coming in from Venezuela. There's an interesting case here, and maybe Marco will be able to somehow expand on that and give me the rest of the nuance, because uh, there's a sector that has had a good boost of its GDP as a result of this migrant flow. Also, that's another better known border town success story. But also, it's encouraging based on good practices. Now, we can't forget the key role played by the health service providers, those frontline front workers during COVID, but also how Colombia, Peru, Argentina worked in this, also Chile and others, while helping to integrate Venezuelan physicians and healthcare workers in this process. And that's why it was as successful as we saw. And we see a paradox here because in times of COVID-19, where it has been reaping havoc, we see that Venezuelan migrants and refugees are really contributing in a very decisive manner, in a steadfast manner, providing health services, food and medication as much as possible. Now, I know that Oscar is going to keep on discussing this and we will look at the value of diaspora and how important these populations are for the receiving countries. And as Luca will address later, but it helps as they try to integrate and as they're driven by their will to make their inclusion and integration official and regular. And we look at the benefits of migration in development, but more specifically, integration through the participation of diaspora as uh, agents of development, and also giving them the tools they need in order to transfer skills and resources. We believe that this is key and we really support it. We know that uh, from our uh, platform and MPI and many other participating organizations, we see that uh, the Venezuelan organizations have been spearheading this effort and it has been very important. Well, this uh, platform includes an integration sector led by the IOM and ILO, where we work with the migrants 
and how 18% of their resources are going towards integration of these migrants so that we can foment regular integration to make sure that we promote social cohesion to make their credentials official. And I'd like to wrap up here by grounding ourselves because we need to put our feet on the ground first and really understand that we'd be remiss if we didn't thank the frontline health workers again, because they are working with 70 people in Cuenca, Ecuador, Ecuador, where they're starting to show them how to perform trades, working with different companies in the Dominican Republic. They're working in San Cristobal, training the SMEs. Also, we work with the OAS, and I'd like to take the opportunity to mention uh, Betilde and our joint efforts that are geared towards the local communities in these efforts. Also, the initiatives that target migrant and refugee engagements in terms of culture and economy. Well, and uh, I'd also like to mention all those efforts linked to the arts with the beautiful Venezuelan Philharmonic Orchestra. And uh, of course, I could go on forever if I started to name names and projects. Some of them are well known amongst all of you, but also the very decisive role played by the Venezuelan organizations in this socioeconomic integration and in the efforts that we will continue to carry out and that will keep on being as important as they are now. And we hope that with this report, we can elucidate how important these efforts have been with the governments and receiving communities as well as with the donors. Thank you very much once again. I'd Colleen. like to now introduce Betilde Muñoz. Betilde, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, Diego, and thank you everyone for being here with us. Of course, I'd like to thank you, Diego Chavez and Andrew for the invitation and for allowing me to share this report with everyone and my friend Diego and Lucas for making this proposal to have us share our public policy and policymaking ideas, which is I think the end goal. And I see that their report has already been shared this morning and Diego Chavez already gave us the overview of the main findings. And as the report itself points at, one of the greatest political dilemmas facing the region is this precisely. And given one of the largest mass displacements we've seen in history, we need to look at the policymaking political conundrum, because it's also a dilemma in terms of policies. Because as I've always said, we need to look at Venezuelan migrants coming into this region, into Latin American countries, and how it happens as a result of public policy making in their country. And as we read the report, and I had the opportunity to 
glean through it, you'll see that this is a common denominator throughout all the different uh, findings as Diego Chavez has mentioned. So I'd like to kick off by saying that, that it is a political conundrum and it is a dilemma for public policy making. Now, I know that there's a wide array of topics and dimensions that we could address today. However, given the time allotted for this and given everything that Diego Beltran has already shared with us, he did a great job highlighting the key points. So I took two of them that I would expand here. One of them is connected to the findings in the migration patterns and trends where we see how there's more women coming in and also family integration, which is something that has been gathered in the data and the report and that follows the migration trends. And also something that is a part of the political and policy discussions vis-a-vis -vis Venezuela is how we can recognize degrees because we understand how but or what it is that we need to look at, but we need to look at how we can really achieve social and economic integration for them. Now on the first point, as the report and as Diego well said, we look at the migrants traveling with their nuclear families. And also we see those that are trying to reunite with their families already there. So this has already been well studied in other regions and it would apply for the Venezuelan migrants. And it is especially because of the diasporas and their own networks. And the fact that as you have a network of acquaintances and family members, well, that's already a great pull factor and incentive for the, the people to come from their country. And this is a key finding in the study as we set out to create better policymaking processes because we need to look at income, access to education, health, and having integration as the end goal. So the uh, report compels us to look at how we can make integration really work. And for that to happen, we need to look at policies that are focused not only on uh, individual migrants, but also looking at the family, the nuclear families, which is at the core. And there are many things that can be thought of in that way and approached like that. We need to look at some other key elements as we fine tune these policies in response to migration, looking at the uh, approach presented by the report to the families. And we see how they're traveling with minors, girls, boys, making sure that these families can receive the necessary advice and counseling to see what services are available to them once they get to the host countries. Diego Beltran already discussed this, and it's something that we must keep on advocating for, and it is to have a regulation or regulated processes that may cover 
all the family members. And by this, I mean also access to the formal labor market for the heads of house household. Also, there's another gender perspective that I set on the table, and it is to look at migrant families and how we must make it so that caring for children does not become a limitation to access of these services because we've seen that it can make it less possible for women to access these services. So that needs to be considered in our policymaking process. Also, when we look at a migrant family, well, they try to settle together. So we must make sure that we don't rupture that bond and that we don't break that linkage. And for that, we need to work with the, uh, the, the authorities in which this is incumbent upon. And uh, we need to look at the new family migration patterns and see it as an opportunity for the host countries because they can look towards these networks in order to disseminate key information to the migrant populations. As, and as we've seen with the Venezuelan migrants, they have been effective organizers and interlocutors to help them work together and in unison with the host countries. The second point worth highlighting, and I'll be wrapping up with this because it's widely covered in the report and I'm speaking to labor inclusion. But as I said, it's a wide array of different factors that will have an impact over the labor inclusion for refugees and migrants and migrants specifically to women and how we can validate their degrees because beyond employment applications, there's something that we see over and over again in this uh, migration flow. And that is that we need to help them validate their education, their trade, their profession, because as it's been said, they're coming in with very skilled workers and uh, with great professional acumen. And we could talk about engineers, physicians, technology experts, and others that have already undergone higher studies. They still aspire to continue working in their own profession once they are settled into the host country and then look at new ways to have their degrees validated and recognized. But there are still many barriers to that. And so we need to really move away from the diagnostic of what's happening and move on to how we can start validating and recognizing these degrees. And we've seen this in the report and at the OAS, we have seen this in our, stu our studies. There are many hindrances and obstacles to validating these degrees. First, the first or chief limitation is the cost. It can be very costly and very lengthy. 
Also, another limitation would be the uh, nuances, the uh, differences in terms of the types of degrees. And this is uh, also uh, related to the fields and professions. And uh, there are different solutions for different cases. And uh, then there is uh, another important uh, factor, and that is that some people don't have a physical degree, so to speak. So they don't have something to prove their professional acumen, be it because they left in haste or because their university or academy or institution was not able to provide that for them or it wasn't available. There's uh, many other types of certifications that are needed and apostilles and other processes. But uh, beyond that, I wanted to bring to the table and put forward some potential strategies. Well, Diego Beltran already alluded to one, and I think it was the first one I wanted to put forward. And it is the executive decision coming from the host country executives to waive certain prerequisites. And uh, we need to work with the uh, different countries and also commend those that have already done this for doctors and healthcare workers, because they have added them already to the COVID-19 res response task forces. And it is one way to lift those hurdles for the Venezuelan migrants and for them to have their validation expedited. Then we can also look at intensive courses with content that is key for the host countries. Of course, it varies from country to country, but it should be a track that's similar and that also considers professional practice, some type of apprenticeship that would help. And we understand that there's many Argentinian migrants or better said migrants in Argentina who have worked with guilds, Venezuelan guilds that have already been working with the host country guilds and unions where they can work together to validate their practice and their trade. Now, third, and in closing, I'd say that we need to look at important examples outside of our region, namely in Norway, where they have an agreement to recognize qualifications akin to higher education, where you design a system or a content validation system with people from the host country who are more familiar with those processes. And then they come up with a validation process using questionnaires, standardized tests, interviews, and 
specific tasks for them to prove their expertise. Obviously, these are exhaustive and sometimes can be very onerous, but in the long term, these could benefit these validation processes for the Venezuelan migrants and in the end, bring about benefits for the host countries and their economies. And that would be the clear upshot. Now, this is just to make us think about more concrete ways to help and to talk about the how we can help the Venezuelan migrants. So I'll stop there. And again, I'd like to congratulate you for the report. And I'd like to keep on emphasizing the need to keep on creating data and evidence to help us better implement policies and for this policymaking process. Thank you. Thank you very much, Betilde, for your remarks. These are all very timely. Thank you for alluding to their report. I really appreciate it. Now I'd like to yield the floor to Marcos Maya. He's a director from the social assistance department at the National Secretariat in Brazil. Well, thank you very much for your attempt at Portuñol. Well, what I'd like to discuss about the report itself is, uh, well, first uh, look at the marked differences among the countries vis-a-vis -vis Brazil. When we talk about Brazil, in a first instance, we reach a conclusion that uh, says that uh, if we look at uh, the corollaries in terms of the uh, percentage of uh, immigrants compared to population, we see that it's different to the rest of Latin America because about 260,000 migrants who remain because they, more than that came in. It was about 300,000 or more, but others, well, some left. They exited Brazil and the ones that remained were about 260,000. And so we have 210 million inhabitants. So then we look at what happened in Uruguay right, Diego Beltran, it's not uh, 210,000 only, or how many come to the United States, right, Andrew? 330, I believe, 330 million inhabitants is uh, what you have there, I believe. And then another characteristic that stands out is the vast territory in Brazil, which poses a great opportunity on the other hand. Well, my opinion is that we should really leverage these differences and uh, we need to look at uh, the policy making process that's needed in order to help Venezuelans at present. And 
we must learn from their report, but also feedback to it in order to contribute fully. So we have a clear integration policy in mind. Now it is going to be one where we help bring in migrants, but also integrate them fully. Now, let me refer back to the slides. I don't know if you can see it. Yes, we can. So these thematic axes in Brazil, well, we have them here and they are around regulating their documents or making them official and then integration. Well, first, the main objective is to broaden the opportunities for socioeconomic inclusion. And so as a main strategy, we have, well, we need to reduce the pressure on the state services because we have Venezuelans coming in in this is an example. We have a state in Brazil which differs from others. It's Roraima. And uh, the way how they're embraced, how they're internalized, tells us a lot about how we can expect them to be integrated. So we look at Roraima as one example and compare it to others. And, and we see how they're focusing on reuniting families and social integration because there's a clear concern for this because we have waves of migrants coming in Generally, it's males followed by the family. Or we have a sibling followed by other siblings. So we need to, cre to create a specific channel for that in terms of social union. Well, these are groups that existed in Venezuela and then come back or come in and get together as a community. These could be neighbors or acquaintances. And then also we see socioeconomic integration having great relevance here. So they work with the community unions, the business unions in the industry, trade, commerce, agriculture. They work with the different guilds and unions in order to create awareness. And uh, we saw it in Brazil where the Venezuelan migrants, well, they were seeking this because it is uh, 
unfortunate that in Brazil, there's much to improve in this sense. And Venezuelans were seeking something better than what we have to offer. And uh, for this, we have some prerequisites and something else that's very important to address here or highlight is that uh, Diego well said, well, we can say that one of the examples that well, the flagship examples we have is uh, one with IOM. And we have a beautiful program for job opportunities. And we work with the unions and we help them to access basic services. What Betilde was also highlighting as uh, one of the enclaves here as we try to help them become integrated in our labor markets. And then we have Portuguese language lessons available. And as uh, we have said, or as I alluded to earlier, Well, from Spanish to Portuguese, it's easier to understand, but from Portuguese to Spanish, it's not as clear because of the phonetics and how much more convoluted it sounds in, in that sense, phonetically. And also we work in social integration through our social assistance system, which is the single health system. We work with the communities and also we have enacted a law wherein we stipulate how in our charter, we also have a specific act that places refugees in equal status to Brazilians in terms of access to almost all public services. And it was all done publicly and we have a single health system. It's a universal health system and all the complexities well, all the factors from vaccination to awareness, education, to complex surgeries. Well, that's all made available for Venezuelans. They can all access these services. This is for any Venezuelan migrant, whether they come in in a regular or irregular manner. So it's really important to also explain how they are looking at regulating their documents and how we are not 
talking about deportation in that sense. Of course, there's that fear. It's a constant fear, but it's a, a matter of uh, clarifying information for them. Now, well, that is all. And uh, in closing, I have a maxim. And it is uh, from Venezuelans. Well, these are Venezuelans who are now successful entrepreneurs. Of course, we have some that are out in the streets still. And uh, we need to also look at Venezuelan indigenous peoples who are still out in the streets and homeless. So, well, I think that that is all I have for all of you. And uh, thank you very much, Marcos. Very uh, interesting uh, presentation. And uh, I think that uh, it will invite us and encourage us to have some other exchanges with you in the future. Now, I'd like to hear more from Oscar Perez. He's the president of the uh, Venezuelan Union in Peru. So Oscar, can you talk more about uh, integration as it pertains to Peru and maybe give us a more regional overview and how Venezuelan civil society is working in these uh, aspects specifically. Oscar, welcome and thank you for being here with us today. Good morning, thank you, Diego. And greetings to Andrew and the whole MPI team. Of course, the IOM team as well. Luca and dear Diego Beltran, who I've gotten to know through this process, also Betilde and all fellow panelists who are here with us in this important event. And I'm really excited about this because looking back at 2016, well, it was uh, difficult to envision this because now we're talking about far more than just uh, assistance. We are now setting forth some very interesting actions through these organizations. And I think that that is uh, the approach to follow. Now, that notwithstanding, we still have many of our compatriots waiting for assistance and services uh, to help them uh, overcome their very beleaguered uh, existence at this time. But uh, we are encouraged by what we see in the host countries. And we've been working in Peru since 2016 on this. And that's why I can claim to have expertise in terms of what Betilde well mentioned, vis-a-vis -vis productive integration, validation of professional titles, the degrees. And in Peru, we have been working on this. And of course, we've made inroads, albeit slowly or progressively, but we're working with Peruvian professionals who can 
help us with their expertise, their experience, and their willingness to accompany us in this process to further develop this country. Now, let me begin by taking a step back and going to the outset of this project because the study has also addressed xenophobia. And as we move forward to the end of the project, the report, we see that this ties back to what Diego mentioned in his presentation, and it is regarding regulating migration, making migration regular, because that would unleash a series of other effects. Because how will people not perceive us as a threat to their livelihood when a local sees that they have to compete for jobs and uh, Maybe they are physicians and they're only able to work as uh, waiters. And then they are displaced by people with uh, greater credentials because an employer would benefit from uh, having somebody that's a skilled, a highly skilled worker because we have some uh, store clerks who are not only looking after the store, but then they end up being the one-stop shop. They come in and they would ask for advice on many other aspects. So we are migrants, refugees, but then we are also workers. And as Betilde was saying, Venezuelan migration to the South is full of youths and uh, people considered highly skilled workers. So how would we not expect for employers to want to hire us? Because uh, also oftentimes they would pay them less than a local. And so that leads to having that engineer, that attorney, that doctor, that local professional to work in the restaurant business because, uh, well, the immigrants would have to come in and compete with the locals. And while they do that, they would have to also make their process regular. So advocacy is needed is the point because many countries need to really work on how to make these processes official so that we don't have these phenomena persist and uh, to make it better in that sense, because right now we only have one process in place, but there are actually two that are operating. And it's uh, worth uh, commending UNHCR, IOM, and international cooperation in general, because uh, the Venezuelan Union in Peru has really benefited from this, because we have a 
temporary worker status and ID to do this. However, this uh, has faced some challenges that we have tried to minimize because even though some host countries begin working in these standardization or uh, regularizing these uh, processes, they still have to work on other standardization processes because there's apostilles and other official stamps and processes that are part of the red tape that keeps us from being able to validate degrees abroad, for example. So we need to look at migration regularization processes. But also in the chat, I saw someone write about minimizing or lessening the red tape, the bureaucratic processes that hinder this standardization. And I can tell you based on my experience in Peru, which I think is tantamount to others, because Peru is now part of an organization that encompasses about 60 other organizations working throughout the, the continent, and it is the Venezuelan Coalition or Coalition for Venezuela. And we really, we, we are really encouraged as we look at what we have done so far, because in spite of COVID-19, many have still worked on helping these entrepreneurs and on helping them find employment. We have a training center where we have already trained more than 1,300 entrepreneurs who in a matter of three months, have been trained with the support of USAID and their economic inclusion projects. We are a strategic partner of theirs. And about half of these entrepreneurs have received seed money to have a startup as a result. And we see how productive assimilation has been made possible through IOM, ILO, USAID and the German Cooperation Agency, we have been able to support more than 800 Venezuelan doctors so that they can standardize their degrees and become incorporated into our public health system in Peru. And so we're not only supporting physicians, but also nurses, vets, professors, teachers, accountants, orthodontists, and many other Venezuelan professionals who have now come here as part of our labor force. And that has helped us reduce or quell that xenophobic unrest that was really afflicting our host countries. And it has actually allowed for us to bolster that integration and the standardization and regularization of these processes. However, we 
are still facing a great challenge, not only in Peru, but in other countries and organizations, and that is trying to shed light and, well, to shed light on what's already been done and laid bare all the uh, challenges that have been overcome. Because there are many voices that try and trample on that and try to stifle that. And uh, meanwhile, we, we hear that there's a lot of uncertainty among the population, the local population itself. So we need to really shed light on what's been done so that the host societies, the host nation can see the great contributions made by the migrants and Venezuelan migrants more specifically in these countries. There are numerous World Bank reports, BBVA and several others that have reported on the positive impact that the Venezuelan migrants have had on these uh, host nations' economies. So I think that it's uh, worth uh, really exploring and continuing with these uh, regularization processes because this could really become the solution to these problems that affect us, not only us as uh, migrants, but uh, for the uh, receiving uh, populations, for the host populations. So we need to make sure that uh, we quell that uh, friction by standardizing transparently these processes so that more Venezuelans can really form part of the product productive apparatus and the productive sector, we soon will be able to share more with you in terms of registries. Well, one that started in 2018 and another from 2020 that helped us in a survey have a better idea of professionals coming from Venezuela and working in Peru. And this has been already employed by the Peruvian government as a science-based analysis for their decision-making processes. And as I said, what's more important is for us to shed light on this. And for this, we have a radio station, we have a television channel, or we work with a network to really disseminate this information. And well, I think I will wrap up with this. And uh, well, many have already said what I wanted to share with you, which is a good thing, I think, because it, it shows that we're all working together in this. And I think that uh, this is uh, very timely. And uh, we need to go beyond assistance. We need to really focus and hone in integration because Venezuelans, at least most of us, are already tired of looks of pity. 
words of pity. And I think that right now, what we need, what we hope for is for people to look at us and want to have us become integrated fully in those host nations. And I think that many of my, my compatriots are already becoming adept in transforming challenges and weaknesses into opportunities, but not only for us, but for Peru and Peruvians. So again, thank you very much. And my presence here can only be interpreted as maturity and inroads made in really integrating Venezuelan migrants and refugees and how much we have contributed to the whole process. Thank you very much, Oscar. So I'll ask for us to allow for a Q&A. And the first question is, what's been the Latin American country that stands out in terms of economic integration of migrants? The second question has to do with the economic integration of migrants and how xenophobia has hindered economic integration. And then there are other questions pertaining to refugee status, asylum, and how to strengthen asylum processes and how these could help to empower or strengthen these uh, integration processes. And there's another specific question on visas, economic refugees and humanitarian visas, how these can all contribute. So I'll let you answer these questions. These are mostly pertaining to xenophobia, integration and access. Who would like to take these questions at this point? Or maybe in order to address the first question on xenophobia and how this uh, could contribute to reduce xenophobia because uh, we have realized that it is important for us to really acknowledge how beleaguered these populations are and uh, how downtrodden they can be. And uh, this is because there's a latent fear to the violence they have been exposed to. They're fearful of a lack of access to these basic services. And we see that contrary to common belief, we see that there is a clear fear and this fear is real. So instead of trying to convince others that these concerns exist, we need to listen to the population more in order to understand them better and really talk about the costs and benefits in migration itself. And also to look at we, how we can allocate resources. 
because uh, there's a lot of resistance to allocating resources for specific populations. And uh, societies are feeling the effects of COVID and many are feeling very insecure and uh, fearful. So they want to make sure that uh, these initiatives are clearly defined and uh, see how these uh, initiatives would benefit some and others. And so I'd like to see uh, if anyone would like to take these questions. They were just very briefly, I'd like to add to this question about uh, refugees and the refugee status, if this provides a migrant with uh, any type of benefits in that sense, and also vis-a-vis -vis integration. Well, what the report tells us is that, uh, well, and as we know in these multilateral organizations, in addition to other civil society organizations that are here with us, well, we know that uh, we need to create integration processes regardless of their status. What do I mean by that? Our recommendation is for host nations to formulate policies that may incorporate these populations in need. Of course, I always say that regularization is the gateway to other rights. It could be a permanent residence, it could be acknowledging their refugee status, or it could be through other visas and options that have been granted by several countries in the region, or the agreement that was signed in Argentina. The key lies in first making sure that we understand that standardization or regularization can be conducive to these processes. And then the countries need to really facilitate this regardless of their condition, because it would benefit the migrant population, but also the host country, because they will, they will be able to leverage that talent. They would get greater tax collection and benefit in that way. Yes, go ahead. Just very briefly. There's a question there about best practices from countries that have really supported integration to a greater degree. Well, we haven't addressed it in that way specifically, but we do highlight best practices. And I mentioned some in my presentation, but we must also be very straightforward and transparent because host countries have been really affected by COVID and they've had to fight COVID through these uh, times. And uh, COVID is still unabated. And uh, Betilde and others have already talked about regularization and documents and how to make these official. This has been already covered at length, but we need to make sure that 
these professional degrees and certificates are validated accordingly. And especially when we look at Argentina, Chile, Colombia, and others that have really done this quite well for healthcare workers, we can extract many best practices there from this sector. But then looking at migration, not only Venezuelan migration, but in other populations, we see that standardizing and validating degrees and certificates is always a great difficulty. And in many cases, it is incumbent upon these authorities to really fully integrate Venezuelans by validating these degrees. But in Brazil, as we know, at one time, they provided a universal or umbrella coverage for all migrants. But that was prior to this integration undertaking. And uh, Colombia also has best practices to share. And of course, they've also faced their own hurdles, but then there are other countries that are making gradual progress, not only in regularization, but also in working to provide equal conditions for the labor market and the formal labor market that is. Now, somebody was asking, why don't you include in this study the Southern Cone and Caribbean? Well, first it's a matter of numbers because we're talking about some that represents 70% of those that have received Venezuelan migrants. But then there are others where regardless of the flows, they have regularization processes that facilitate integration. We have mentioned Argentina and Uruguay where they're allowed to integrate at a level playing field with uh, the locals. And so we need to really highlight these examples. Well, I stopped there because there are many other examples and best practices, but uh, I'm sure we will continue addressing these in our next webinars and conferences. Thank you very much, Marcos, you have the floor. Well, I would like to start off by uh, underscoring something that Diego Beltran mentioned. And that is, well, what are the limits, the constraints to integration? For example, in terms of labor integration, we look at the laws and how these may facilitate or hinder this process. Because we look at Brazil's informal labor market, well, we still face great challenges to integration for any migrant coming in. It's a great challenge to integrate them in the formal job market. And this happens also when we 
talk about the health policy because in our constitution, we made an amendment and we have migrants and refugees in equal standing as Brazilians in that sense. And so we now must look at how we can adopt something akin to that universal health access in other countries. So we would need a universal health policy for that to take place. And it would be health for all, really. We cannot build something in a void, in a vacuum. So we have also, well, I have had to interpret simultaneously myself and I'm sorry if I don't have any more brain mass. Thank you very much. So now we have the closing remarks. Thank you for allowing me to be part of this very important uh, event and allowing me to close with the following remarks. I do agree that Peru has really appreciated the work done by OAS, UNHCR, their partnership with us and other organizations working in advocacy and uh, migration, regularization, invalidating degrees, and looking at prerequisites, because all this has helped us to grant benefits and open possibilities for migrants. And it is evident that this easing has helped migrants access services and about 600,000 Venezuelans now are able to make their migrant status regular and regularize this so that they can access professional fields. And well, in their report, there's a, a part that says a million Venezuelans in Peru, but we are now 1,300,000, almost 1,400,000 Venezuelans. So I respectfully would like to make that correction to the uh, report. And uh, I also say respectfully towards uh, Colombia. And uh, we need to look at how this is taking place in Peru and where we stand because we are talking about 1,400,000 Venezuelans in Peru. Well, thank you very much. Well, I believe that this has been a really broad and comprehensive dialogue. And we are very thankful to all the panelists who have helped us elucidate all these important topics. And we'd like to thank IOM for working as our research partners and also helping us in this dialogue. And we reiterate our commitment to IOM. And we keep on working in this dialogue and this research in a practical manner so that we may contribute to public policy making so that we can help 
refugees and migrants from Venezuela. And as we said earlier, integration will not only benefit migrants, it will, however, it will also benefit society as a whole. And it is something that we are always underscoring. Now, thank you again for being part of this dialogue. We understand that there are many challenges ahead. However, we've had enough innovation and progress to get there. And we thank you all for driving this effort for helping us from civil society, from the government, from migrant and refugee organizations, from the international organizations, academia, the private enterprise, and others. Thank you all very much, and I hope to see you all soon.